This is a uh, particular pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Zubro because uh, I've been working with him for a number of years now. And really, I think this lecture series and how we've done it and integrated it with the website and, and broadcasting it, it's sort of the, uh, we're trying to integrate technology with medicine, which I, you know, I think we've been, uh, we in medicine have been well behind um, many other fields in, in the country. And, uh, of particular interest today is telemedicine, which Dr. Zubrow has really led the charge uh, nationally. Um, he spoke at SCCM this past year and uh, on, on the topic. He has uh, started one of the first uh, tele-ICU groups uh, in the country, um, which has become very successful, which has brought, was brought here um, uh, last year to Maryland, and um, he's currently the Vice President of Telemedicine and the Medical Director of eCare, our Tele-ICU unit. So he's here to talk to us today. Thanks. This is uh, totally informal, and uh, for those of you that are here for uh, the sepsis lecture where there was a uh, factoid every 30 seconds, this will not be such. Uh, hopefully you'll have a little bit of fun. What I really want you to uh, focus on is uh, this is a care delivery model, and uh, I think um, there's been a lot of sensationalism in the press, medical press and lay press about it, some good, some bad, and I'm going to try and uh, give you what I consider to be the honest um, uh, literature and, and really where it's going. If you have questions, stop me. So uh, one of the things I've learned since I've come to Maryland is they are seeped in uh, medical history. Uh, so uh, if you, uh, those of you, in, all of you here probably in critical care uh, should understand the roots of your specialty. Uh, and uh, really intensive care did not really come into its own uh, uh, in, until about 50 years ago. Uh, prior to that, hospitals just had separate wards for post-op recovery high-risk surgeries, uh, et cetera. And actually, cardiac monitoring uh, was the birth of critical care. Uh, but when did cardiac monitoring start? Does anybody know? So actually, around the turn of the century, we're talking the 20th century, uh, they actually knew how to do cardiac monitoring. But it wasn't until the advent of a defibrillator where you could do anything about it. So that was really the birth of modern ICU, and it really started as a cardiac care unit, where when they uh, started being able to defibrillate patients, they noticed uh, that they thought it was worthwhile to monitor them. Otherwise, it was just of academic interest to watch a patient have spontaneous VTAC, VFib, and die. Uh, and so the defibrillator, along with doing uh, CPR, uh, actually launched the ICU era and it started out in the CCU. The other thing that pushed uh, ICU care was the polio epidemic, where they had to uh, kind of uh, sequester the patients in one area, mostly because of nursing skill set and the use of the uh, iron lung, uh, which uh, really uh, supported a lot of kids uh, with polio to they were able to uh, regain some uh, strength to spontaneously breathe. So in the last 50 years, what have we done? We've learned how to intubate patients, uh, put them on uh, mechanical ventilation, which was almost never done uh, prior to 50 years ago. Uh, we have all kind of advanced hemodynamic, neuromonitoring, et cetera, uh, none of which actually has ever been shown to improve outcomes, but we sure do it a lot. And then we have critical care or intensive care as a physician specialty. 
And um, this is probably the first well-publicized paper, Peter Pronovost paper, uh, the manpower study, uh, also showing that uh, when they did an objective uh, systematic review, that intensivists really did uh, improve outcomes and actually save money. And this is just one of many uh, papers that came out. This came out a year ago. This is a meta-analysis summarizing uh, what this group felt was all the relevant literature, looking at the efficiency of having intensive a staffing model. And so uh, looking at the forest plot, uh, you could see in every situation, uh, intensivists were felt to be beneficial. And in uh, even the uh, length of uh, duration of their shifts, 24-hour uh, day, Dr. Netzer's group from here actually has probably the best paper in this whole group. Uh, it, the confidence interval is not spectacular, but still leans toward 24-hour day service. So do we have a double standard? So all of you sitting here at the Mecca don't know what it's like not to have 200 people around 24 hours a day. 80% uh, of hospitals in this country do not have in-house uh, residents or fellows. 80% um, of hospitals in this country are hospitals of less than 200 beds. And uh, that's where most of the critical care really happens. And uh, do we have a double standard? And this is just a, kind of a collage of a variety of papers which show it's pretty bad to get sick on weekends, holidays, at night, and in July. Um, so we're not going to touch the July issue today. <laughs> um, and actually, the Derek Angus from Pittsburgh uh, published this. It's not projecting real well. I apologize. But basically, when people say they have daytime staffing, what do they really mean? And then when they have nighttime staffing, what do they really mean? Uh, the sum total of the data is only 4% of hospitals really have 24-hour day in-house intensivists. This is a, uh, a map where the intensivists, uh, the trainees, tend to settle. And so it's not an even distribution, as you see in the center of the country here. There really is a dearth of intensivists. And for you uh, political aficionados, this is uh, where the last five elections went. So if you're a Republican, you're toast. Um, and intensivists have a very high uh, burnout rate. And uh, although I think that's being somewhat mitigated uh, by the uh, advent of shift work, and uh, I think when uh, those of you who are old enough, I'm probably the only one in the room that could say this, when emergency room uh, uh, physician or uh, ED became a specialty, they ran into a lot of that. Then they figured out all the shift work stuff, and it became a very desirable specialty. And I think critical care is moving in that direction where uh, people are just used to being shift work. Uh, you sign out your patient, you go home, and you're totally off. And that's very appealing in a lot of uh, situations. But uh, uh, intensivist burnout is still a huge problem. Uh, what kind of money are we talking about for critical care? Uh, this should not be new information to you. 50% of the deaths occur in the uh, in-hospital deaths occur in the ICU. They make up 10 to 15% of the beds, but yet they take up at least 33% of the economics. And some people say it's as high as 45%. But uh, uh, and you can see it really uh, accounts for a huge financial outlay. And as we get better at it, the numbers are getting worse. In other words, um, 50 years ago, you wouldn't dream of putting an 85-year-old on dialysis and a ventilator, and now it's every day. And that's not cheap. 
And by the way, here we come, the baby boomers uh, are going to dramatically increase the utility of all these services. So uh, there are small quizzes embedded in here. Does anybody know what this is? What's that? You are not close. <laughs> this is a uh, tobacco smoke enema kit. So as I started out saying to you, um, uh, there'll, there'll be some medical history here. Uh, this was actually a real fad in the 1890s and turn of the century. Uh, tobacco was felt to have a variety of medicinal purposes, and the phrase blow, smoke up your you-know-what uh, does come from this, actually. So uh, this is real life. It really happens. Um, so, uh, you know, why are we having this talk, why we do in tele-ICU is because we've got to change the way we do things. Uh, there are just no way enough intensivists in the interest of time. I took out a lot of the slides, but um, because of the way the RRC has allowed uh, critical care to grow, they uh, increase the requirements for training for pulmonary critical care, which right now is supplying about 70 to 80 percent of the uh, intensivists in our country. It's not true in Europe. Europe anesthesia contributes a much higher percentage. Uh, so when they went up to a mandatory three-year fellowship, they didn't increase funding. So instead of having three fellows a year come out, they made two fellows in three years, uh, and therefore they basically cut training by a third. Now there is some light at the end of the tunnel because emergency medicine can now funnel into critical care, and I do believe that all the, pro the dire projections of us running out of intensivists are exaggerated because of that, and over the next 10 to 15 years, we will catch up, but the reality is having 24-hour-a-day in-house intensivists is expensive and there are just not enough people. So crossing the quality chasm, the Institute of Medicine uh, reports, and we really have to do things differently. So is this a new idea? Actually, uh, I was amazed when I found this. This was from 1924, uh, and television or tele had not been coined as a word, so they still called it radio back then. but the uh, uh, dreamers uh, could see that. Is telemedicine uh, accepted? Pretty much the answer to that is yes in almost every survey except among physicians. And there are certain blocks of physicians that are more resistant to telemedicine than others. Uh, surgery, cardiology seem to be the most resistant, uh, but uh, it actually, there's more resistance in that same Republican swath of the country <laughs> that there is than there is on the East Coast. Uh, but telemedicine programs are going everywhere. Uh, the VA system and the, and the military are into it, so you know it's becoming standard of care. So um, we're going to spend a couple minutes talking about care delivery models, and um, there are a lot of ways of uh, delivering tele-ICU. Neil Reynolds and company published this article and he and I verbally joust over this on a regular basis, uh, but in fairness to him, it, it does open your eyes up a little bit to other ways of delivering tele-ICU, even though it's not something we have embraced here. So uh, he talks about the uh, decentralized tele-ICU, open architecture, and centralized closed, which is what we do here, and I'll explain in a minute. The decentralized tele-ICU is basically using telecommunication equipment push the patient's image, voice, and data to any physician you want to who's involved in the patient's case. So if you're the attending, it basically this model is you're on 24 hours a day, and instead of taking the phone call, 
uh, you're getting everything pushed to your computer. So if it's 3 in the morning, you wake up, you log on, and you see everything. I believe this is not a good lifestyle and is not sustainable, but there are people that conceptualize it this way. Then here is the uh, open architectural centralized where everything goes to a central location. You would have a tele-intensivist or possibly just critical care nurses, the NPs, and other advanced practitioners. And then, but also you'd have the ability to push images and everything else to the practicing community. This is doable, it's very expensive, and again, you're not giving the practicing physician community or caregiver community rest because as much as tele-ICU is good for the patients, it's as good for the caregivers. And then here's the closed architecture where everything funnels through the tele-ICU and they're basically taking call for all the patients involved in the system. And the way I like to uh, look at it is a little different. There's on-demand episodic care, so uh, whether it's a telephone call or uh, you push a robot and you log onto a computer, the only time you're interacting is when somebody at the bedside feels there's an issue. There's the organized rounding and on-demand episodic care, which means you know once a night or twice a night you push a uh, cart to a patient's bedside, you discuss the patients like making bedside rounds, except you're doing with uh, telemetric equipment. And then the third model, which is what we do, is continuous proactive monitoring with on-demand care. Uh, so this is a uh, picture of the robot. This is what gets you on television. This is kind of cool. Um, these things are a quarter million dollars. Most places don't buy them. They rent them and spend a quarter million dollars over three years renting them. Uh, but it's supposedly it's totally integrated and the physician drives it from place to place. And uh, I have actually done this and it's kind of cool for about a half hour. I almost took out a wall and then I kind of had this epiphany going like, gee, I could be doing other things while I'm driving this robot all over the place. And uh, the other thing you have to remember is, technically, if you're driving this robot everywhere, you have to have access points, computer infrastructure, and wireless infrastructure to support it. So uh, when you see it on television, they drive it into an elevator. Well, that means you've got to put access points in the elevator shaft. That's really expensive. And uh, you know, so it, this is, a, in my opinion, a very expensive way of uh, delivering care. You could probably pay somebody to push one of these things, uh, but it is utilized. The Army has worked with this. This is uh, providing a, a surgical trauma support in a small hospital from a level one trauma center. So it is being used, and we don't ascribe to this here, uh, but uh, again, in, uh, to be intellectual honest, I'm showing you this, this is another care delivery model. So for the rest of this talk, we're going to talk about continuous proactive monitoring which is what you're most likely most familiar with. And just to put you in the ballpark for uh, uh, correct nomenclature, um, so people, uh, people at, at Penn call their uh, tele-ICU VisiQ. VisiQ is the name of a software company. It was developed by two uh, intensivists from Hopkins. Uh, they showed great results, published in critical care medicine in 94, and then they went to Hopkins, and Hopkins says, yes, yeah, really nice guys, get out of here. And so they say, can we take the software? And they said yes, and they started their own company. The name of their software is eCare Manager, and the term EICU is a trademark term owned by VisiQ, so we try not to say EICU. Uh, you have to send them a check whenever you say that. Uh, the generic term is tele-ICU, and the name of our generic 
uh, the name of our tele-ICU is eCare. And there are at least five or six other eCares across the country. Uh, this name was developed up at Christiana and they didn't trademark it, so a lot of people are using it. Uh, VisiQ no longer exists. It was bought by Philips um, for something like $250 million. So any of you that want to spend two years developing a program, there's hope for you financially. If you suddenly need to go to the hospital almost so anywhere this in the United is, States, uh, the chances are you will be in a place where the staff uh, is at the very least he died several years ago lung thin. cancer. For but example, there are an estimated 6,000 intensive like care doctors unless you've seen for 5 it, million probably patients a year. Well, not enough, which is why some hospitals are now getting help from new technology. Here's ABC's Jake Tapper. In intensive care units of hospitals, patients often hover precariously between life and death. Sometimes the biggest problem doctors and nurses here face is simple physics. No matter how good a nurse you are, and I've been a nurse a long time, I can't be in two places at once. At this Virginia hospital, Nurse Swecker now receives extra help from doctors and nurses nine miles away. Melanie? Hi, Melanie, this is Dr. Cowboy. How are you At this control today? center, Dr. Elizabeth Cowboy and her colleagues use cameras, microphones, and computer software to monitor up to 108 patients in five local hospitals, including Tamisa Pope. Pope, are you breathing better? Oh, yeah. Called an enhanced intensive care unit, this technology is only five years old. It's used in hospitals in 19 states. On computers, Dr. Cowboy reads Pope's medical chart, checks her breathing, heart rate, and other vital signs. The technology is not meant to replace doctors and nurses making rounds in person. But it does add a layer of protection. All right, so hopefully you guys can see that actually still looks like that. It's a little sharper now. They have HD cameras and uh, monitors. Uh, but that's pretty much what we're doing uh, when we're cameraing into a room. Now, having said that, the cameras are neat. It gets you on television, but we really don't use them that much. It's mostly handling problems, trolling the database, uh, which I'm going to explain uh, now a little bit in more detail. Anybody that gets involved in telehealth, telemedicine, or tele-ICU must understand that it's about these three buckets. If you just get involved in technology and don't pay attention to process and the people involved, you will fail miserably. And uh, Houston, um, uh, I forget the name of the system down there, they probably wasted uh, five to eight million dollars because all they did was buy the technology and nobody spent any time talking to the people who are developing process. And uh, I would tell you any form of telemedicine or telehealth you get involved in, you must pay attention to everybody involved. Right now, God, can you see that? Uh, right now, or this is uh, about three years old, but these are the tele-ICUs across the country. There's a strong concentration in the Chicago, Milwaukee area. Fifty percent of all the ICU beds in that area are under some form of tele-ICU care. Uh, Sutter Health System, which is a huge health system out in California, has a high concentration. And again, the uh, area where we have the most land that you would think would derive the most benefit, there's none the conservative uh, Midwest and uh, Rocky Mountain states. So uh, schematically, we have uh, real-time uh, data feeds and dedicated circuits uh, to the core uh, 
central operations room uh, from any any type of facility, whether it's a critical access hospital, an ED such as Queen Anne's, community hospitals, or a tertiary referral center. And um, we right now are using dedicated lines. There are some people that are, are exploring the use of VPNs and going over the internet. Uh, we think there's too much data, but as the technology gets better, that may be a modality that we use for those of you who are technically uh, cognizant of what I'm talking about, and that would significantly reduce costs. So everybody says, well, how do you keep track of 100, 120 patients? And the answer is, I don't. Um, nobody in their right mind can keep track of 120 patients. The computer keeps track of 120 patients, and this is where the sophisticated software really helps you. We have uh, um, built-in uh, parameters for the patients that the computer tracks, and they run the computations every three minutes. And if the patient falls out of the expected norms and uh, whatever the parameters are set up, you will get an electronic signal, uh, what some people call electronic tap on the shoulder, that maybe this patient's having a problem. And I would say 90% of the time, 95% of the time, it's a physiologic variable, it's an artifact, you really don't have to do anything. But when one of these alerts comes up, the critical care nurses in the core will review the alert, they'll review the patient's database, they might talk to the bedside caregiver, the nurse or respiratory therapist, and if they decide it's a real problem, they'll kick it up to the intensivist. So uh, when uh, we work at night, we're really focused on the sickest patients, we're taking care of acute problems, and we, uh, have criteria for uh, categorizing the patients for acuity, and you spend the whole night really uh, looking at the sickest patients and let the computer and nurses uh, monitor uh, for uh, unanticipated problems the other patient population. So this is what our central station looks like. We use eight uh, screens because we have, right now we have uh, 10 hospitals, soon to go to 12. So we have, these are real-time data feeds from the bedside monitors, and these are happening, as I said, real-time. Um, there are no audible alarms in the core, so somebody says, how come you didn't know my patient was coding? And my response to that is, because you didn't tell us. Um, we don't have 100 patients up there. We can pull up any patient, but we don't have that audible alarm to tell us VTAC occurred, uh, so somebody has to tell us to look at that patient's rhythm. Uh, but we do get real-time vital sign feeds, which go into the alerts that are over here. Uh, we obviously can see anybody's x-rays, and these are the native uh, electronic uh, health records of the individual hospitals. And we use the local hospital CPOE, which we'll talk about later on. And uh, we staff our tele-ICU with boarded intensivists and critical experienced critical care nurses. Other places do other things. So uh, if you're in Banner, which is out in the uh, southwest, they use FCCS uh, internists, FCCS-trained internists. They have one intensivist on, and they run about 500 beds, uh, maybe 500, almost 600 now, I think. So they all have three or four FCCS internists uh, who will handle electrolyte replacement, common, you know, uh, less complex things and kick up the really sick things to the intensivists. Um, uh, University of Massachusetts has only uh, a critical care uh, trained PAs and an intensivist. Uh, they don't have nurses in their core. Um, uh, Geisinger used to staff their core with only nurses. Uh, I think they've recently added an intensivist. They had trouble recruiting. Uh, Aurora, which is in the uh, Milwaukee area, has a 
pharmacist 24 hours a day. Uh, so different people utilize different talents, and uh, it just goes to show this is new. Nobody really knows the right answer. So this is an admonition for all of you. Um, those of you who are using FaceTime and Skype to send medical information, don't get caught um, because it's not encrypted, it's not HIPAA compliant, and you can get in a lot of trouble if they catch you. If you do it in the hospital and Joint Commission or CMS catches you, the hospital gets in a lot of trouble. Uh, so one of the uh, advantages of uh, using our technology, not that I'm selling anything, is that our stuff's double encrypted. So uh, those of you who got involved with the suspected Ebola patient, the reason we were giving out the laptop is because it was double encrypted. We didn't tell people to go in there and use their FaceTime phones uh, to uh, use as communication devices. This is becoming more and more important as the regulatory agencies realize what's going on. So be very careful about doing this uh, and certainly don't send any patient information to a non-healthcare provider. Uh, this is what the views are, you can see from the, uh, uh, the brief video. The patients see us, our name is right there. Uh, in the core, uh, we are in proximity to nurses and doctors. We have team huddles. They really run it just like an ICU team at the bedside. This is eCare Mobile, um, and uh, this has to be pushed, not driven. Instead of a quarter million dollars, it costs about $22,000. And we use, uh, up in Delaware, we were actually the first in the country to use it in the emergency room to provide critical care support in the ED. Uh, in a busy ED, the ED physicians have about 20-minute attention span, then they move on to the next disaster. And a septic patient, unless that patient gets a bed right away, the ED nurses tend not to push the therapy. Now, that's gotten a lot better, particularly since Manny Rivers' early goal-directed therapy, surviving sepsis campaign. But I'm sure all of you have seen patients where the nurses kind of pick and choose what they want to give the patient in ED, and they say the ICU will take care of the rest of it, and that patient gets under-resuscitated. And uh, our experience with this is the physicians love it, the patients love it, the patients do better, and the nurses hate it because we're increasing their workload and are not really set up for this type of acuity because they're staffed to a four-to-one patient ratio. Uh, whereas, you know, in ICU, it's two to one and they have more time to uh, push the therapy. So again, this comes down to people and process. Before you implement this in an ED, you have to make sure the nurses are supported to actually render the care. Uh, our nursing staff is there 24-7. They have at least three years of experience. Uh, the, actually, I got to fix the slide. Our nursing ratio is 35 to one. Um, right now, our nurses' average experience is about 12 years and I think we're 85% CCRNs, so um, it really is a highly qualified nursing staff. We also use a shared staffing model. Uh, when I introduced this concept, it was not embraced, but they're coming around. And uh, so all of our nurses work at the bedside, and we think this is really important. All of our docs work at the bedside. I have no full-time physicians, and uh, we, again, think that's very important that everybody maintain their skill set, maintain their reality set, and uh, I'm hoping they will bring back the latest innovations from wherever they're working. Our physicians are there, kind of think about it, when the bedside people are not there. One of the biggest problems that I think uh, we run into is 
when the nurses get put in the middle of respiratory therapists is who do they call if they have an option of the bedside intensivist and the tele-intensivist. And so we don't like them to ever be put in that position. We have a rule, the bedside doc is always wins. If we think they're committing murder or malpractice, there is a chain of command built into it, but by and large, we try never to create conflict in the room. Um, so what's required locally? And I always show this slide because everybody's focused on the central line and the chest decompression. The truth of the matter is if you ask me, and I'm not being recorded like I'm being recorded now, I'll tell you, you really need to make sure somebody can intubate a patient. The rest of the stuff, you could work around in almost every situation. And think about this from a practicality point of view. In a non-trauma hospital, what's coming into the hospital after 7 o'clock at night, 95% of the admissions are going to be medicine admissions, and they're coming through the ER. The ER should be putting in the central line if the patient needs a central line. Every now and then, the patient on a floor will deteriorate, goes to the ICU, somebody's got to come in to put it in, or you have a PIC team uh, that puts it in. And uh, I think uh, we underutilize PIC uh, devices in smaller hospitals uh, where we uh, will tend to infuse norepinephrine into somebody's peripheral vein and wait two hours for the surgeon to come in and put the central line in when really a PIC line would be safer and the resuscitation be a lot more comfortable with it. So these are the kind of workarounds. Chest decompressions, I think in nine years of doing this, we've had maybe four. Uh, and I uh, seem to be the king of this because I've had it twice where I've taught the nurse how to decompress a chest over the camera. And aside from the shaking hands and telling me I'm not trained in this and it's against my license, uh, and then when we finally convince them Good Samaritan Law has them covered, stick the goddamn needle in, and uh, very successful. And uh, uh, you make a true believer in the nurse once they have accomplished it. Um, and you know, once the chest is decompressed, there's no rust to re-expand that lung. They're hemodynamically stable as long as you can oxidate them. So you take an hour to the surgeon comes in. So I think the chest decompression piece is really overrated, but you have to be prepared for it. Oh, and I also uh, say proceduralists. In a lot of our smaller hospitals, the respiratory therapists do the intubations. They have very variable skill sets. And when I go into a new hospital and start setting up the process, I do try and get them to buy glide scopes with uh, accessory screens, and therefore, over the camera, we can watch them and help guide them through. I have been able to help several people with that when they're just doing this and I'm watching them, I, you know, I tell them their arms cock wrong or something like that, but it's really hard to see where they are. Uh, but using technology, as Mike said uh, before I started, the technology is out there and we should be able to use this. This should be a lot safer and better than it is. Oops. All right, test question. Nobody speaks like this, I certainly don't. That it will ever come into general use notwithstanding its value is extremely doubtful because of its hue and character are foreign and opposed to all our habits and associations. Anybody? Not anesthesia. Anesthesia was turn of the century. Nope, telephone was Alexander Graham Bell. And actually interesting, the first telemedicine um, consult was Alexander Graham Bell because he said, Watson, I need you. Do you know why he said that? He spilled acid on himself and he needed help. 
So, in fact, the very first phone call was actually a telemedicine call. No, this is a stethoscope, folks. So, in 1823, everybody thought a stethoscope would never catch on. And uh, I'm going to somewhat tongue-in-cheek make the argument that it's time for the stethoscope to go. Uh, but uh, it is the one piece of equipment that doctors will not give up. And uh, I'm not necessarily advocating you give it up. But what is the stethoscope? It's a low-end ultrasound machine. We should be doing ultrasounds on all these patients, particularly in the ICU. And, uh, you know, how many times do you listen to a chest on a ventilator patient? You're getting information out of that? Um, really. Uh, so we believe and uh, we're uh, fostering the concept of uh, remote physical examination. Uh, Mike and the research group up in uh, eCare, we had uh, two abstracts this year at ATS actually teaching bedside caregivers how to acquire the images with us interpreting the images over the camera. So ultrasound really is challenging in the sense that learning to interpret the images and what you're really looking for, it is a definite skill set. But actually acquiring the images, the simple images, is not that hard and we should be using this more and more. And in the tele-ICU, we push this. So uh, I will tell you the coolest thing I've ever done in nine years is I did teach a nurse to get a four-chamber view in a 60-bed hospital and diagnose tamponade one night. Have I done it since? No. <laughs> it was that one in a million case, but you can do that sort of thing. Uh, these, this is a, a fairly complete list of the things you can do with an ultrasound machine. I'm fairly willing to bet your physical examination skills will not get you all that information. Uh, Craig Schmidt's group in Chicago has uh, publishers, Paul Mayo, and in fact, uh, for the evaluation of the shock patient, which is particularly relevant to what we do. And beyond uh, these type of objective findings, everything else is, I think. Uh, or what's the lactate? Uh, but what other objective parameters are you using? And we really, uh, with, uh, I'm going to say since Guyton, over 60, 70 years of hemodynamic monitoring, nobody has ever shown that hemodynamic monitoring can improve outcomes. Uh, the physiologic variables and the microvascular uh, variability is, is just too much for uh, the physiologic parameters to be of any help. So we really need to look in other directions, and I am a strong advocate, those of you who work with me know of ultrasound, and I would encourage all of you at your training level, get really good at this. This is only going to get better. Every year they come out with better, more finite equipment. So when we go into a hospital, we do encourage them to have protocols. It's not that we distill critical care down to five protocols or six protocols, but actually if they have these five, six protocols, that's 80% of it. The rest of it, patients falling off the protocol list anyhow or you wouldn't be getting called. And um, the other thing is there's national consensus in all these areas right now. So you really shouldn't have to fight with them. And when I go in there as I say, we'll use your protocol. Uh, and that way they don't think Big Brother's dictating to them. But the truth of the matter is if their protocol's up to date, it's the same as our protocol. And uh, so you could say sepsis, well, you can get in the argument, do we give steroids or not steroids? Well, now you're out to the 10% of patients we could argue about. I only care about the 90% on the front end. You could give steroids, you could not give steroids. I'm not going <laughs> to fight with you. Uh, but good front end management taking care of the good 80 and 90% of those patients, everybody should really be on the same page. Uh, this is a paper we did at uh, Christiane, and this would be hard to reproduce um, because uh, we had a uh, finite resident population, and we did a Likert scale survey 
before and after implementation of tele-ICU. So what they, uh, we had the unique opportunity where uh, we knew that tele-ICU was coming in, we did uh, polling of all the residents before it went in, and then six months after tele-ICU was in, we re, uh, I'm sorry, a year after it was in, we re-polled the same residents. So they were exposed on both sides, and that's difficult to obtain that kind of comparison. It is Liker scale, this is not Nobel quality science, but uh, as I said, I don't think anybody's gonna be able to reproduce this very easily because it's hard to get the same people to answer the questionnaire. Having said that, the residents were actually uh, brutally honest, uh, and I won't repeat some of the comments, I don't use that kind of language, uh, but uh, <laughs> they actually said that they felt it was a wash, it was even, we got straight down the middle threes on everything except patient safety. And the questions were, was this as good for the patient as having an in-house intensivist? Is this as supportive to you as having an in-house intensivist? Is this uh, adding to the quality of your teaching experience as the intensivist? So really, to me, I took it away saying, yeah, we're probably equal having in-house intensivists. The only thing the residents found was much better we got four and fives are patient safety. They felt this was much safer for the patients, again, because of the nursing interaction, the computer software, where somebody always had that extra set of eyes on the patient. Um, we are not, as I tried to say already, a, uh, uh, a bedside uh, slave scope, et cetera. I'm gonna skip that. We encourage people to think of us as the intensivist on call, and you know we're, we're the ones getting the calls. So uh, does anybody have questions? You're, hopefully you're pretty clear about what we're doing. And now I'm gonna review what I think are the uh, relevant data. And um, I am biased. I believe in what I do, um, but. Uh, Chuck, do you, do you think that the practices are a little more state conservative just because the limited contact time or? Practices of the tele-ICU yeah. physician? Yeah. Um, Actually, I don't think so. I think the practice is we bring, uh, I don't want to say aggressive, but we bring updated critical care into these communities. And um, I'm amazed, and again, I would encourage Mike to comment, I'm amazed the number of times where we're saying you got to transfer that patient, put them on ECMO, when they had them sitting in the corner ready to die. And uh, we do extubate in the middle of the night. We are a little bit conservative if they don't have good airway management. So I know what I'm working. I know this isn't scientific, but I do a, a leak. And if they, if they don't have a good leak, I don't extubate them. And I know the data says that's not a good test. You don't have to yell at me. But I, so I will take the extra two or three steps before. But we do extubate. Uh, one of our sites, uh, we cut six hours off their post-heart surgery patients. So in the SES database, they went from the fourth quartile to the second quartile because uh, we were able to cut their time. And we're still actually doing that kind of work for them. So I don't think we're that conservative. I don't, Mike? Yeah. And, and as I said before, when we go into the hospital, if they don't have up-to-date medications, in other words, you know, we tell them, you want us? Get rid of it. One of the most interesting things we've done, which nobody thinks about, is we haven't standardized their drips. So we would go in the hospital, they would have five concentrations of dopamine. 
and I tell them you have one concentration of dopamine. Pick one, and that's it. Same thing with all their other drips, and that's a patient safety thing. And then their complication rates seem to go down. Same thing for sedation. You know, pick two or three drugs. Get rid of this stuff. This is a good question. So the first paper, real quickly, this is done at um, Avira, which is up in South Dakota. Uh, you know, huge number of patients, huge swath of the country. Uh, Nebraska, Iowa, I'm sorry, here's Iowa, South Dakota, North Dakota. Not a geography major. Uh, but anyhow, so, and something like 60% of these hospitals are critical access hospitals. For those of you who don't know, critical access hospitals, depends whose definition you use, but they're under 30 beds. And most of them have one or two ICU beds. Some of these hospitals don't even have nurses working at night unless they have an ICU bed. And so they would transfer pretty much everything. So just by putting this system in place, they saved over a million dollars in helicopter transports. Uh, the satisfaction stuff was over, uh, over the top uh, across the board, uh, and uh, they uh, thought they had $8 million uh, in savings in, in their second year after they really got themselves organized. And uh, this is a very thriving program. Ed Zawada, who was running the program, has since retired, uh, and they don't even have intensivists. They just staff it with internists. Uh, this is the first big paper that got a lot of national press. This was the first, what I'll say, naysayer paper. And I'm fully convinced that 99.9% .9 of the people did not read this paper. They just listened to the Wall Street Journal saying it doesn't work. But this is the Houston group. And uh, you have to read the paper, as I said, but they only had 31% of their physicians engaged in this process. So what that means is if the bedside physicians do not allow the tele-ICU to write orders, they're functionally telling them, you can't manage my patient, you just have to call me, that is lack of engagement, as I'll call it. Uh, and so in this situation, only 31%. And in fact, if you look at the p-value here for their high acuity patients, their mortality went down significantly, as did their length of stay. But they had so many low acuity patients, so when they crunched the numbers, um, it came out that they didn't reach statistical significance. And that's what made the Wall Street Journal, made the national news, et cetera. And I think this was an intellectually dishonest paper, to be absolutely honest with you. Uh, but it made it to JAMA, you have to understand uh, the critical care editor or JAMA is not a believer in telemedicine, and uh, he has been very difficult to deal with. So unfortunately, you have to understand the politics of how all this stuff goes. Um, this paper is out of Chicago. This is uh, Advocate, where they only had 21%, uh, what we call category three, or 21% of the physicians allowed uh, the tele-ICU uh, doc to uh, write orders. And uh, they published this paper in Critical Care Medicine. Now, what was the problem? As I just said, they had low physician engagement. They had, in the Houston situation, they had no senior leadership at all. And so this is the difference is what do you do when you get negative results? Advocate did a total rework of their system. They incentivized the bedside docs to participate in the care. Uh, they remodeled everything as a, that process slide. And they repeated this study, and they had very successful program now, and in, in fact, their physicians, uh, I think they made their uh, bonus cut, all their critical care physicians, because their outcomes were so good using the tele-ICU. Houston took this data and closed their tele-ICU, pretty much threw away $8 million, I think. 
So again, it's senior leadership is very important in these processes. Now, if you paid attention, Eric Thomas was the first author. So he went back after that paper was published and redid the data, uh, looking at the sicker end of the patients, and actually admitted that, in fact, this is a very effective way of taking care of sick patients. Uh, but there was no retraction in JAMA. This is the first, uh, and I think in many ways the most important paper that didn't get any publicity. This is out of Lehigh Valley. And the reason this paper is important, it was in the Archives of Internal Medicine in 2010, is um, this uh, system, they use different software than the Philips software. So everybody thinks that VisiQ or Philips is the only company out there. And it is not. They use the software they use is IMD Soft. Uh, they, uh, but they do a continuous, proactive, intervention-driven model. So somebody watches their patients 24 hours a day, and they had significant improvement in pre and post mortality and pre and post uh, hospital length of stay. And uh, so, to me, or what I'm trying to get across here is the care delivery model worked in this situation without using the Phillips product. This is the paper that everybody talked about from Craig Lilly's group, and uh, this was published in JAMA in 2011, and this was the first accepted paper in a major journal showing that there really was uh, value to have in tele-ICU. Uh, I'd like to point out here who's uh, on the hit parade here. Richard Irwin is the editor of CHEST, and he's the chair of medicine. Willis Chandler is their uh, administrator. Uh, the, uh, their nurse manager, I believe, is uh, right there. And uh, so it was a number of people involved in the whole crit critical care process. And what they did is a total work redesign of the entire University of Massachusetts system. They made Craig Lilly the czar of critical care. Everybody used the same protocols. Everybody had to adhere to the same standards. The tele-ICU was 100% allowed to write orders. The fellows and residents were not allowed to get in the way if it was an emergency. And it had VP oversight. And in fact, the VP that did this is Dr. Ettinger, who's now the CMO of our system. Uh, but anyhow, he's the one that put all this in place. And they had very dramatic results. And uh, they actually published this, and I want you to pay attention to what you're looking at. So this is baseline. So if you pay attention, their off-hour hospital mortality was 30% higher. ICU mortality was 35% higher. Okay, now they were able to bring that down significantly with the tele-ICU program. I'm amazed they published that, but I have to give them credit. They were being very intellectually honest. And hospital length of stay did not seem to have as dramatic an outcome, but mortality was definitely improved. And uh, this is, uh, I'm going to run through stuff quickly now, it's running late. This is a meta-analysis. I want to point out Peter Cram because he's uh, in the VA system in Iowa, and he's become a, a bit of a naysayer. But anyhow, uh, he did a meta-analysis and showed that uh, mortality uh, and uh, ICU uh, length of stay uh, got better, and I believe he looked at 24 tele-ICU across the country. And this is the most recent one that came out in December uh, in CHEST, where Craig Lilly did a uh, match control uh, using 100,000 tele-ICU patients and about 10,000 match controls in a 10 to 1 ratio, obviously. Again, forest plots, it's hard to argue with this. Nothing, the confidence intervals don't even cross the center on any of these. So for people to say that this doesn't work 
is just wrong. It clearly does work in almost every application if it's done properly. Uh, and this was the overall of this 100,000 patient cohort that they looked at. And in the article, which I don't think the data really supported this, but he threw out there that early intensives management seemed to be good, adherence to best practices, shorter response times, and frequent interdisciplinary rounds. And I throw out these questions. Uh, I still think this research is wide open. I would love to get a tele-ICU research group going here. Uh, beyond our uh, interest in uh, ultrasound, uh, but uh, I'm not sure if the early warning software is as important as just having the intensivist wide awake willing to speak to anybody as opposed to the nurse saying, gee, last time I woke up Dr. Smith, he yelled at me, I'm not calling him, and then the patient stays relatively hypotensive for two hours, and then Three weeks later, the patient has renal failure, ARDS, and everybody says, gee, what a shame. Well, gee, what a shame to me. That's a preventable complication. But in this uh, paper in CHEST, uh, they uh, looked at the implementation in the VA system. Again, Peter Cram, uh, Bob Bonello are both in the VA system. And they say it costs between seventy dollars and $87,000 per bed, and they thought that was way too expensive. I actually agree it's way too expensive. And I'm amazed that the editors let this chart through. You have to read these papers carefully. You guys wouldn't read them carefully. I'm in the business. I do. But they charged all their hardware and clinical information system to this research paper. So 23% of the cost was just upgrading their ICUs and their IT infrastructure. If you take 23% off of that, it's about 50 grand per bed, which is what everybody else is spending per bed. And when you do the mathematical modeling of financial structure and do a business plan, that's almost what it costs to have in-house intensivists. It's a little cheaper depending on the size of your hospital. So you have to read this literature really carefully. Um, what are the key success? This is it. You have to have strong leadership all along the way. So uh, real quickly, here are some of the challenges if you get involved in this work. And uh, I love Mildred here. <laughs> um, so uh, we have, uh, uh, this slide's out of date, we now have 10 hospitals, we have 32 logons. Every hospital has its own naming convention, its own logon, its own timeouts, et cetera. Um, CPOE, ordering a potassium replacement in 10 hospitals means you have to know 10 different ways to order potassium replacement. Just to give you an example, these are the uh, six names of an IV bolus of saline that you will encounter in our tele-ICU. This is a huge problem. This is Mark Zubro's fault. Why is it Mark Zubro's fault? We were the first in the country, we were the first in the world, I think, to use native CPOEs. And I did not realize how big a problem this was going to be. Uh, so I never negotiated with the hospitals that we had to have a common lexicon. And in fact, when the uh, country uh, government came out with meaningful use, it pushed everybody into using CPOEs. Uh, and that was, a, I don't know if it was good or bad, but the government blew it. They should have standardized language. And they should have standardized uh, data uh, and how the data is presented so the systems would talk to each other. And they should have developed a common lexicon. But they haven't, and all of us will continue to suffer from this. The only time you miss it is if you're in a system where all the hospitals are under the same EHR. Uh, so the Maryland eCare uh, got a lot of national press. 
Um, there was a consortium of six rural hospitals in Maryland uh, which felt they needed intensivist help. They negotiated with Christiana Care uh, uh, to develop tele-ICU services, uh, deliver tele-ICU services. These are the five hospitals that were part of the study. And in spite of a lot of these hospitals not even having intensivist coverage and no organized ICUs, uh, we did a pre and post uh, interrupted series and actually showed that we were able to reduce mortality and uh, ICU length of stay uh, along the lines of what people experience through the rest of the country. And let me tell you something, it's a lot easier to reduce mortality in a university hospital than it is in a 60-bed ICU uh, in a small rural hospital because the numbers are so small, if one person dies, it takes you forever to recover. Um, this is Atlantic General. This was just published in Tele, uh, no, I'm sorry, Health Leaders, which is a big magazine for administrators. And they feel they save $300,000 a year having us provide tele-ICU services. And they have in-house intensivists during the day. So even with that, uh, with reductions in length of stay, reductions in complications, better outcomes, uh, they think this is financially well worth it. Uh, right now, this is our program. We're up in 10 hospitals. We'll be in 11 in January. And in the spring or summer, we'll be out of Western Maryland uh, Health System. We have every ICU bed on the Eastern Shore. So this is one of the last slides I show. Uh, and everything I've talked about pretty much is um, uh, improving patient care. You know, why do we do this? We want patients to get better. But it also, this significantly improves the quality of life for the caregivers. If you're an intensivist, even if you don't work in the tele-ICU, you go home, you go to sleep, you don't get any phone calls. If you're the bedside nurse at 3 in, in the morning, we're not asking you to make decisions over your pay grade. You just call EICU, call the e-care. Um, the doc wants to, it's boring as hell when the doc's not being called. I mean, you want to stick a pencil in your eye to stay awake. So, and the nurses develop that confidence, that interaction, the patients get faster care. How many patients have you guys seen, if you moonlight in any of the outside places, that it's 1 o'clock and they get sedated because nobody wants to extubate them? So now you have an iatrogenic drug overdose. It's even worse when it's a real drug overdose because now you have an overdose and an iatrogenic overdose. And then the next morning they're kind of groggy and they don't get the tube pulled. Then they get the VAP. And, you know, that's what happens. You just, we don't do anything brilliant. To use a baseball analogy, as I said earlier, I think I've hit one home run in nine years, but I've hit a lot of bunt singles. You know, fix the electrolytes, get their blood pressure back up, get them synchronous with the ventilator, get them extubated when you can, and the patients will do better. For those of you who still don't believe in telemedicine, you will do telemedicine, unless teleportation gets perfected first. I'm betting on telemedicine, but you naysayers can do it. And this is hard. This is change. And so everybody thinks it's a great idea, or not everybody, but people think it's a great idea in theory, and they love the progress, but they hate the change. And change is hard. The older the healthcare people are, the harder the change is. If you're like me and didn't grow up on computers, this is really a painful process. You guys in your 30s grew up on computers. I don't even have to train you. You figure out the software before I can train you. And I'm done, and we're on time by 30 seconds. I'll be happy to take questions.